invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 42 to 47. Charles Dickens famously began his work, A Tale of Two Cities, by saying, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Well, this week, my wife did not realize it, but she provided for me the perfect opening illustration because she had a tale of two kinds of living connected this week, and it was the best of times and the worst of times. First, the worst, we were at Paris Mountain yesterday as a family. We enjoyed uh, the nice morning, the uh, getting some time outside together, and she was trying to juggle too many things. One of our daughters was trying to arrange a time to hang out with her friends, and so, so how he's managing that. And then there was an item that we were selling on Marketplace, and she's trying to deal with people that are interested in buying the chair. And then there was this group text message thread going on that she felt the pressure to respond to all these things, and it led her to say, oh, I hate living connected like this. Something that we can all identify with if any of us that have a phone in our pocket. That was the worst of times. The best of times was Tuesday night. Our small group met here in this room, and the guys were over here, and the ladies were over here, and just spent unrushed time catching up and praying together. And later, I asked her, how was the time with the ladies? And it was this contented sigh. Oh, it was so good. I love being able to connect with the ladies like that. I love them. We are at this season and culture place where it's easy for us to get sucked into that urgency and we feel the need to respond and and that kind of living connected is is shallow and it's it doesn't really produce change so we have to value the kind of connection that brings life and encouragement we're going to see that in our passage this morning last week matt preached the beginning of chapter two where peter delivers his pentecost sermon preaching Jesus' death and resurrection and the text says the people heard it. They were cut to the heart. What must we do? And he says, repent and believe. And we have the stunning summary in verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Our passage this morning is going to show what... Um, life was like in this newly formed church and how they demonstrated the corporate nature of the Christian faith and how they lived connected. Let's pray and we will get into the passage. King Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I thank you for the encouragement that is already ours and singing the hope of the gospel and even hearing other folks around me sing of our confidence in you, that you will hold us fast. Thank you for being a great God. I pray that you would give us eyes to, to see you with greater clarity this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Acts 2, let's begin in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. 
Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, verse 42 functions as a hinge for us. It connects what comes before with the 3,000 being added to the church, and then it describes ahead what life is like in this new church. Luke uses the word devotion in describing what these Christians were doing. Now, devotion is, is obviously a powerful word. It's a strong word. It's not a word that we often will say. So I, I looked it up. It, it carries the idea of dogged persistence. Something that you're devoted to is, is something that you view as of highest importance that you're obstinately sticking with. Luke's going to give us four things that these early Christians doggedly persisted in. And I think it's going to be an encouragement to us. First, they lived connected in their devotion to the apostles' teaching. They had devotion to the apostles' teaching. Just as the apostles were taught by Jesus, these apostles in turn taught these new believers about Christ, about His life, about His death and resurrection. They would teach about the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament pictures, the, the signs that are fulfilled in Christ. These new converts were committed to learning of the gospel from the apostles, placing themselves in submission under their authority. John Stott said that one might say that this day in Jerusalem, that the Holy Spirit opened a new school, that the apostles were its teachers, and that there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten that day. These disciples were hungry to learn, so they sat at the apostles' feet. They wanted to, to know more about who Jesus was, and the apostles' teaching was authenticated by, their, by signs and wonders done. Verse 43 says that everyone was amazed. Luke describes Jesus' own ministry in verse 22 of this same chapter in the same way. Next week, we're going to hear from Pastor Brandon teaching chapter 3, where Peter and John do such a thing in healing a man lame from birth. Their teaching was authenticated by their signs and wonders. And these first disciples persisted in this teaching, Christ fellowship. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. So must we also. This is the idea of what Matt taught last week, that we pursue Christ. We have to have the Word. So let us be encouraged this year to follow the example of these early Christians, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Let us use every tool that we can get our hands on to have the Word into our lives. I think it was maybe two or three emails Matt sent out in the last couple of weeks with some practical tools that we can use to have more Bible, to intake the word more. Let's get about that this year. Let's, let's make a plan, set a time, set a place, and get in the word this year. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. 
The basic meaning of this word is association, partnership, close relationship. In secular Greek, it would be applied to the sharing of goods. We can see a sense of that later in the passage, but there's really something more going on here in understanding fellowship. It's, it's more at the level of identity and defining who we are. Let me share a couple of other verses that where the, the authors use the word fellowship. 1 John 1, 3, We have seen and heard. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. You were, you were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul speaks of fellowship with the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 13. The foundation of our fellowship that Luke describes here in Acts 2 is not what we share in, rather who we share in. Incredibly, Christians are participants in the life of the Trinity. Now, fellowship is, uh, is a commonly, word, commonly used word uh, only among Lord of the Rings fans and in churches. Outside of that, it's not bandied about very often. And even for Christians, we have a, a poor understanding of it. For wherever Christians in crockpots and casserole dishes are gathered, there you will find fellowship, right? Um, I had lunch with a, a man this week who's been visiting the, the church for the last few months, and in the course of just getting to know one another, we discovered that we have mutual friends. We have mutual interests. We both love college football. His, his orange and purple team may be moderately more successful here of late than my red and black team, but that's not the point. Um, we have common interests in woodworking. Now, these things are great for Christians to share together. It, it gives some context for time together. It maybe will allow for deepening of a friendship. But I cannot say that we had fellowship around college football or fellowship around woodworking. Biblical fellowship is uniquely a Christian relational experience that can only be found at the foot of the cross. We can have fellowship with one another only because God has given us fellowship with himself in, in the gospel. So fellowship is sharing together in the new life and truth made possible by the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ. We share the most important thing about ourselves with, with others, our experience with God. We have fellowship together because God has given us fellowship with himself Therefore, we value living connected. Bruce Milne wrote, Scripture knows nothing of solitary religion. The salvation it witnesses to is emphatically one which has corporate dimensions because the man that, got, that experiences God's grace and salvation is reconciled to him, and he's also therefore reconciled to the people of God within whom his experience immediately sets him. Therefore, the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, they're indissolubly bound together. They, they cannot be separated. When we understand fellowship through this lens, it becomes a great gift and responsibility for us. We realize that we must have great concern for those with whom we share Christ. It's a desire to care for them. 
I recently heard a definition of love as to fight for the highest possible good in the life of another. I thought it was really beautiful and compelling to fight for the highest possible good in the life of another. Now, this is, this is uh, must be born of selflessness. We're going to read in, later in this verse where, where these early believers, they recognized that others had need, and so they sold their property to meet those needs. In a few weeks, we're going to teach on the the value of we give generously. So I just want to briefly point this out. But but beautifully, their sacrifice mirrored Christ's own. In the same way that Jesus' life was, was not taken by force, but freely given by love, so was these disciples. Their property was not taken away from them. They freely gave it to meet needs. So fellowship is a sharing with our fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself in hopes that that we can then be a means of grace and see them grow in their fellowship with God. In Paul's letters, he uses the expression, our Lord, 53 times. He uses the expression, my Lord, one time. Church, let's grow in our awareness that, that the Christian faith is distinctly corporate, that we have to have connection with others. Now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to suggest some practical steps for what this looks like to be fleshed out in our day and time. Thirdly, you see how this early church lived connected by their devotion to the breaking of bread and prayer. You could say that it was a commitment to worship together. Verse 46, every day they gathered together. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So their fellowship is expressed not only in giving care to one another, but in their corporate gatherings together for worship. Breaking bread likely has the double meaning of both a shared meal and taking the Lord's Supper together. This is a very unique season for many of these new believers Following Christ would have cost them deeply. They would have had to pay a price socially, economically, um, familially. Some of them would have been ostracized from their families. The, The most important thing in their lives. And so Jesus in the gospel, giving them a new family, it only makes sense that they are clinging tightly, that they are gathering daily, that they're spending their time and finding life and encouragement in these other believers. Now, through the years, many people have asked, why, Hugh, why don't we take the Lord's Supper when we gather for a small group? Why don't we do this? After all, we see the example of it here in, in Acts 2. Again, I think it's best to, to understand this as a unique season in the life of the newly formed church. We get to other passages like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul three times says, in talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church. So the supper is is for the gathered church, not just subsets of it. But these Christians were committed to gathering for the purpose of worship. You notice that their approach was both formal and informal. They went to the temple. There's no reason to think that they're still participating in the sacrificial system. 
But it's very likely that, that in their going to the temple, they're either participating in, in daily prayer services or they're gathering in the courtyard to preach Christ crucified and, and resurrected. Either way, they're supplementing their, their temple worship by going home. They're, they're motivated to, to gather together corporately for the purpose of worship of our sovereign God, and then they take that motivation home with them, and they're gathering with, with others privately. Their worship is also balanced between joyfulness and sincerity, joy and zeal and, and that of awe. We read of their, their joyful, sincere hearts. They were together in temple and homes. But then we also read in verse 43 that everyone was in awe of who God was and what he was doing among the apostles. So their worship was, was lively. It was full of joy and zeal, but it was never irreverent. Remember a, a pastor said, we cannot sashay into the presence of God. I don't really know how to quantify what a sachet is. I was trying to describe, you know, trying to think of, of a, a better word. I, all I could think of is bebop, but that doesn't even make sense either. We have to understand that God is holy. He is a consuming fire, but God is also near and he's merciful and he's gracious. And so we have the balance, like the early church, of joy in Christ, but also reverence. Fourth, the... Uh, this early church models for us life connected by their devotion to evangelism. If we only read verse 42, we could come away with the conclusion that they spent all of their time together, exclusively together. But then we get the second half of verse 47, where Luke says, Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, certainly, um, the, Lord, the Lord added, He saved people and He added to their house, but He used the everyday, ordinary means of evangelism to do it. This is how God grows His church. We, and we shouldn't be surprised, right? The major theme of the book of Acts is the mission going forward. The church growing, expanding, proclaiming Christ. So it's natural that we see these early Christians doing the same. The Lord added to the church. He is the head of the church, so it's his prerogative to add members to it. We do not make Christians. We simply point to Jesus, and the Lord does the work. It's also significant that he added to their number. Okay, He added to their number. He saves the 3,000 in this passage and, and collects them together with the believers that are already in the city. He both saves and adds. If, if he added without saving, then all of a sudden there's unregenerate church membership and there's nominal Christianity, which is a, a major problem. Or if he saved but didn't add, then there's the problem of solitary Christianity. This reinforces the author I quoted earlier that, that salvation and the doctrine of the church, they always go together. And he added daily. The, temps of, the tense of this verb is that he just kept adding. He kept adding. If the church's worship was daily, so was their witness. So what does it look like for us today to live connected? What does it look like for us there, we have to recognize that there must be a context where you can be known and you can know others. 
So let me give you a, a few practical suggestions for what it looks like to live connected. First, we have to worship God together. The beginning of that answer, it's not the full answer, but the beginning of that answer here at Christ Fellowship is, is the commitment to be a part of a small group. Small groups meet um, different days of the week, all through town, 10 to 20 adults meeting together regularly to do what we see in verse 42, to study the word, to pray together, to encourage one another, to have meals, to give tangible care to one another, to rejoice with the one who's rejoicing, to weep with the one who's weeping. We see the value in prioritizing that time together so that we can grow in Christ's likeness and be the means of encouragement so that others also grow in Christ's likeness. Now, these are difficult days for us to live out a commitment of worshiping together because the thing behind the thing is that our presence matters. We have to have, put a priority on being present. And obviously, with, with the, the pandemic, it's often difficult to be together. Church, let's, let's all make an attempt this year to take a step towards presence in whatever way that looks in your comfort. Perhaps it's if you're not able to gather with other people, then take a step to utilize technology. Maybe it's a, it's a FaceTime call, a Zoom call, something more. Let's all work towards worshiping God together. And what we're going to see is that that time with other brothers and sisters, that there's a spillover of God's grace from their life to ours, from your life to theirs, and it's a major benefit to us. Secondly, what it looks like to live connected, we have to use our spiritual gifts. We read in, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians how God blesses every believer with a spiritual gift. This, this gift is meant to bring unity to a diverse body, and it's meant to benefit the body. In both of those passages, Paul's going to draw upon the analogy of the human body, how there's many members, many parts, that they're all contributing to the, the health of the whole. And it doesn't matter what your gift is, whether it's, it's hospitality or encouragement, teaching, giving, whatever. In each case, the person with the gift is not the primary beneficiary of that gift. The trajectory of that gift is always outward. The Spirit gives a gift to every Christian that's meant to be a blessing to others. So the encourager doesn't personally benefit from her encouragement, but everybody around her does. The servant-hearted man doesn't personally benefit from his gift of service, but everyone around him certainly does. So consistently exercising your gift is both fulfilling an entrustment from God and an act of love because the gift is meant to produce the greatest good in someone else. So if you're not living connected with other believers, you're missing out on their gifts, and others are in turn missing out on what you have to offer. This is exactly what Paul has in mind in, in Ephesians 4 when he's talking about when each part is functioning properly, that the body builds itself up in love. Third, keep the one another commands. We, we must recognize that the vast majority of the New Testament cannot be obeyed unless we have proximity to one another. Even with some of the most basic uh, commands to, to forgive one another, 
You're never going to forgive one an- someone else unless you're close enough to them for them to sin against you. Do you realize that? Let me give you a couple of um, particularly helpful and important one another commands if we're going to be about living out this kind of biblical fellowship and living connected. First one is bear burdens. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone's overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We all carry weight. We all experience burdens. There are times when our burdens seem kind of low grade. They seem manageable. But then there's also seasons where the burden seems overwhelming. The burden cannot be carried on our own shoulders. We have a responsibility to both communicate those burdens to brothers and sisters around us and to be on the lookout for those that are burdened to carry weight for them. We cannot be like the, the tragic caricature of the, the church member who complains about no one visiting them in the hospital. And then upon asking questions, well, who did you tell you were in the hospital? Nobody. Church, if, if you are burdened and you want to experience a lightening of that burden, tell a brother or sister that you know, that knows you and loves you about that burden so that they can help and be the means of grace. Secondly, serve one another. Galatians 5.13, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Motivated by love and concern for the greatest good in another, let's serve each other. Hebrews says that we should consider how to stir up these things, how to stir up love and good deeds. Be creative. Think about it. You have freedom. Use it as an opportunity, not for yourself, but to serve others. Thirdly, confess and confront. Biblical fellowship recognizes that that sin is a big deal. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. It doesn't water it down. It recognizes that we cannot be casual in our approach to sin, that it is not something to be managed. We're not going to gloss over it. We, we need the kind of environment in the church where we can confess our sins to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this idea in, in his book, Life Together. He said, when sin is, is in the dark, when nobody is aware of it, it thrives, it grows, it prospers there in the dark. But if a couple of brothers go into that closet and they drag that sin out into the light, it cannot grow. It, it's there in, in plain sight before everyone, and it's in that place that we'll find grace. Having a biblical view of sin means that there are times when we'll need to confront one another. Church, this is where we need to grow in considering each other and grow in, in asking good questions. Hey, brother, it seems that you've been pretty edgy here of late, kind of, kind of quick to be frustrated and, and angry. Is, is everything going on? Is everything okay? What's going on? Or seems like you're 
very down. You're, you're battling discouragement. Is there, is there any way that I can pray for you? Let's, let's be specific and try to bring those things out in one another. Fourthly, encourage. We have the power to be the means of giving life to each other with, with how we talk to one another. You have no idea what kind of great effect comes from recognizing the evident work of God's grace in someone else and giving voice to it. It's far easier for us to see what God is doing and how he's growing other people than it is to see it in ourselves. God may be objectively growing someone in leaps and bounds, but that person is often totally unaware of it. When you see it, say it. It, it makes all the difference. I see how you love your wife, and it's a great encouragement to me. Hey, I, I've always appreciated how you're so intentional with your relationships. Your boldness to share the gospel gives me confidence to go out and do it myself. Let's, let's live out this kind of life-giving encouragement. I've already talked about um, the importance of small group. We've got a short video with a couple of folks testifying to how God has used small groups here at Christ Fellowship. There were, there were several times that our small group had set reminders on their phones to pray. And so they were praying for us as we told our boys the news that I had cancer. They were praying for me going into that first scary chemo treatment. They were praying when I was alone in the hospital recovering from surgery. And in these moments that should have been nearly crushing from fear, instead there was a strength and a peace that I can't even explain. It was just God's kindness in answering those prayers on our behalf. I never experienced being sustained by the prayers of others like that before this year. One way that, uh, that God has really shown himself has been through the faithfulness of my small group. Um, I am a member here because first uh, I was invited to small group and throughout meeting the wonderful people in that group uh, and especially just the men that have been faithful to uh, come alongside me and lift me up when I'm feeling down and um, keep me focused on Christ that uh, you know I immediately knew this was where God wanted me to be. Now, what's stunning is in, in those two testimonies, uh, neither person said, I learned so much Bible in my small group. Or um, I was, you know, really impressed by the, the cleanliness of the host home or how good the food was that was served. What they said was people were there. They, they took the time to be uh, in the know about what's going on in my life. They prayed for me. They, they cared for me. And in knowing both of these people, it made all the difference in their lives. So if you're not in a small group, what are you doing? You're missing out on so much life and encouragement. Talk to someone today. We've got groups meeting all over town. I want to double down on what Sarah was sharing about the women's ministry starting some smaller groups of uh, clusters, two and three ladies gathering together. That's going to be the theme of our Multiplying Disciples Summit next month. 
We want to live connected as a church this year. It's the annual theme, and so the pastors are actively working to create the kind of environment and the tools so that we can do that well. Now, there's some some pretty serious barriers to this kind of connected living. I want to identify three major barriers that, that we have to be mindful of and avoid if we want to live connected. The first one is self-sufficiency. Now, none of us are going to stand up and announce, I don't need you. But a lot of us do say that with the decisions that we make and how we live. If we, um, if we demonstrate that, that, we, that we do not value being together with others, then we're demonstrating self-sufficiency. If we always disregard the encouragement, support, and correction of the body of Christ, then we demonstrate self-sufficiency. We demonstrate self-sufficiency when we're unwilling to admit our need for help. And this is just as bad as saying, I don't need you. We can gather, you know, kind of hide ourselves away, and with the use of technology, the internet, we can listen to the best Bible teaching every day of the year. But if we're never around other Christians, we're never going to step into what God has called us to be as as men and women of faith. We're never going to have anyone that will function to hold the Bible up like a mirror and say, this is where you need to grow, or I see you growing in this area, keep going, at a boy, at a girl. We have to reject self-sufficiency. Secondly, we have to reject formality. Sometimes we get a country club kind of mindset. We can talk about safe sins, but there's a whole list of sins that we cannot talk about. I remember I was a freshman or sophomore in college. I had been a a Christian for five or six years, and I was very active in a campus ministry. One one week, uh, a guy showed up that he had he had never been before, and he's talking to us after the meeting, and we started asking, "Well, what what led you to come to the meeting tonight?" and and he talked about rekindling a faith from his from his childhood that he had neglected, and we're like, "Okay, that makes sense." And then he he confessed a very specific particular sexual sin. He said, this sin is dogging me and I want to get rid of it. And I thought to myself, bro, you can't say that out loud. You cannot just say that. This man was in anguish over his sin. He's crying out for help and I could not be a help to him because I had this ridiculous formality mindset that, that, that produced no good in him. A culture of formalism actively encourages hypocrisy because there's always this pressure of presenting the right face. And so we put on the mask. This only heightens the problem because, again, sin grows best in the dark. Formality responds to confess sin with shock and outrage instead of grace. We act as though it was hardly necessary for Christ to die for our sin, but boy, did He have to die for yours. 
A biblically informed view of sin should lead each of us to conclude that we are the worst sinner. And since Jesus has forgiven us, then we can freely forgive and respond to the confession of sin with grace and understanding. We can unintentionally promote a false gospel that, that, yeah, Jesus can save all sorts of sin, but not that sin that you just confessed. We must remind weary sinners that Jesus Christ is rich in mercy in the same way that he's shown it to us, he shows to all. So let's reject formalism. Thirdly, let's reject bitterness. Bitterness is the the sinful heart disposition towards another person. It can come about from unmet expectations, from, uh, from jealousy, from being offended. I can't believe you said that about me. Why is she being recognized instead of me? I've done all these things to reach out to him, and he's not done anything to express any kind of thanks back. I, I spent some time with, with another brother this week, and he's recounting his life before Christ, how, um, how with, if he was ever wronged, he made it his a point to, to get vengeance. And the words that he described of his approach was, was terrifying. He said, if I was wronged, what I would do is I'd, I'd dig out a little place in my heart and plant a root of bitterness. And then I took care of that root. I cultivated it. I watered it. I fed it daily. And before long, that root took hold and it spread. And it infected and ruined every relationship in my life. Church, if we allow a root of bitterness to remain, we'll only be concerned with our greatest good and never the good of another. It will be concerned with creating the greatest pain in others, but rather it, it, it creates pain in, in, in our lives. Someone smarter than me said, bitterness is the equivalent of drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. So church, let's reject self-sufficiency. Let's reject formality as we know that, that, that the gospel can cover all of our sin. Let's reject bitterness. This early church was committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to worship by the breaking of bread, and to evangelism. If you're like me, you're consistently lagging behind in one or more of these categories. Don't let that shame be the reason that you drift to the edges. Don't let that be the reason that discouragement be the reason that you withdraw from the church. It's a losing strategy. Press in to the people of God, into Christ's family, so that you can find the encouragement and support that you need to press on. Let's remember who, who God has made us to be. Members of one another, vitally connected to the other members of the body. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, you've no doubt seen disunity and damage brought on by the church. I just want to apologize. That is not what God has called us to. That is not the example. Would you this morning consider Christ? Consider the Jesus who is rich in mercy, 
that yes, that we are all still sinners, that we are still in the process of being conformed to His likeness, but know that we are seeking to live connected, that we are seeking to love one another. Church, let's, let's put that on display that, so that when Jesus says that, that the world will know us by our love for one another, that, that it's true here in Cherrydale, that, that Christ fellowship has a megaphone for the gospel and how we, we love and serve and we use our gifts for one another, God's grace abounds. So let's walk with him in that. I'm going to invite the band to come up. This morning, if, if the Lord has spoken to you, perhaps he's challenged you to, to put something in place. Or maybe you're, you're a non-Christian and you want to deal with your sin. There is hope for you at the cross. I want us to all take a moment to quietly reflect, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we confess that our only hope is in the resurrected Christ and the finished work that he has done on our behalf. We know that he was the perfect spotless lamb who took away our sin. And in turn, Christ has given us his perfect righteousness. So we desire to glorify you, to honor you rightly with our lives. Pray that you would do that in in this church by how we live connected, by how we love and serve one another. God, I pray that you would convince us of it this day that it leads to to real life change. Father, we're, we're desperate for your grace. We're desperate for your nearness. Father, we thank you that, that because of the empty tomb that we have hope. We pray that in Christ's name.